talk about. Popping off means. The question was why the grass is greener (laughs) on the Zen side of the fence. (laughs) I'd like to change the question a little bit and perhaps it won't be an answer to what you asked. (laughs) Munindraji would do that all the time. You you would ask him a question and he would give a three-hour discourse on whatever he felt like (laughs) talking about. (laughs) Somewhere you knew that the answer was embedded. In some sense, the question has to do with what practice we should do. You know, in in the range of Buddha Dharma, and one of the beauties of Buddha Dharma is the wide range of form and expression that it takes. And it's a testament to the richness and the depth and the breadth of Dharma understanding that you can approach it from very many angles, very many forms. As the Dharma spread from India to Southeast Asia, to China, to Tibet, to Japan, now to America, it's like every country, every culture, there was an overlay of the culture on the basic practice. And the Dharma Dharma was expressed then through a particular cultural form. A lot of to-do was made over the centuries between the school of gradual enlightenment and the school of sudden enlightenment. I've never quite understood the difference because enlightenment is always sudden. It's always an intuitive, wordless opening, understanding. It's not discursive and it's not gradual. It's always just in the moment opening takes place. But until the suddenness of it, 
it's gradual. In other words, all the work that everybody has to do up until that point is part of the process. You might think of it in terms of a path leading to a mountain. The path does not create the mountain. The path is not the cause of the mountain. The mountain is always there. And so enlightenment is not caused by what we do. The unconditioned, the uncreated, the absolute is unconditioned, which means it's not conditioned by anything. And so what we're doing, our practice, is not the cause of enlightenment. But it's the path, just as the path leads to the mountain but doesn't cause the mountain. Which path to follow? You know, the Zen path, the Tibetan path, or Burmese path, our own path. It's really a question, I think, of connecting with that form of practice which most inspires you to do it. Because it takes a lot of perseverance and a lot of diligence. As you've seen, it's not an easy journey. We're going from... Basically, we're going from how far our mind has projected outwards, which you probably noticed is tremendously far. I mean, we live our lives... We don't even live our lives mostly centered in our body. We're way out, you know, in plans and remembrances and self-images and images of other people. Huge energy of projection. What we're doing, in a way, is reining ourselves in. And so we start noticing the projections coming back and coming back and coming back and begin to notice what it's like to feel the body and to be in that. And then going further and further inward. Right? It's a journey of opening the mind, opening all the layers. And there's an incredible tangle and web of conditioning. Conditioning of desires, of aversions, of judgments, of fears, of opinions, of views, of likes, of dislikes, of preferences. This incredible tangle and web. And the practice, whatever form it takes, and there are lots of styles of form, is a question of unlayering. The, the, one of the traditional images used is that of peeling away the layers of an onion to get to the center. And one layer after another, you peel and you peel and you peel and you peel and you peel. And what's at the center of an onion? But that nothing... it's expressed very well in one Tibetan text where it talks about that it says it is but doesn't exist it's it's very profound the isness of nothingness it is the center of the onion is and it makes possible the whole onion but it doesn't exist. It's not like the layers of the onion. So what we're doing is unlayering, unlayering, unlayering to come to that isness of nothingness.
And so whatever path keeps you walking and is leading to that. How about Western systems like people who feel very Christian or very Jewish or Muslim or you name it? There's one model for understanding whether or not a particular path is leading to that unconditioned center. And I think it's a, it's a clear reference point. And that is the seven factors of enlightenment. Of mindfulness and investigation, and energy, and rapture, and calm, and concentration, and equanimity. It's like that's the recipe. And you put all these ingredients in the bowl, and you stir, and out comes the cake of enlightenment. And it doesn't matter what you call it. Right? If in any tradition, in any path, these factors are being cultivated, that's, that's the result. So we have to look at what we're doing. Is the path of practice cultivating these factors or not? Some paths cultivate some of them. Others, some others. What we want to do is to mature and bring to ripening all of them. The beauty of this practice and the power of what we're doing is that one of the powers of mindfulness and mindfulness means mindfulness fullness of awareness brings together it attracts like a magnet all the other factors of enlightenment so it's a tremendously powerful uh, quality of mind that we're cultivating And it also takes a lot of perseverance, because as you see, it's not easy. Our mind has been conditioned for eons to be unmindful. So it takes patience. It depends how we use the word. And people use the word enlightenment to mean different things. If you use it in the sense of mm, sort of intuitive understandings, right, on all levels, it's true. And as we said, many, many, many times. It's just an intuitive understanding of some part of this process. And you could call that a moment of enlightenment. Because it's a sudden opening to something. Another way of understanding the word enlightenment could be in any moment that is free of greed and hatred and delusion. That is, in every moment that's free of grasping and free of aversion and free of identification or forgetfulness. That also is a moment of enlightenment. It's a moment of freedom. 
the way I've been using it this evening is referring to the experience of the unconditioned, which goes beyond all of that. So it's really just a question of how we use the term. Is what you said a few moments ago uh, reconciling practice of Vipassana and the concept of God? Depends what you mean by the term God. If you mean the isness of nothingness, it's reconcilable. If you think of it as some personal deity, it's not reconcilable. So again, you know, we use words so carelessly. How many wars have been fought over people's ideas of God? You know, just because the words are used, God, soul, enlightenment, you know, unconditioned. We use words without either the experience or the care to define exactly what we mean. And so, we often speak at cross purposes. I would define God as the power that created everything. Uh, could, could you give the, uh, the Buddhist view of what's responsible for existence if, if, if there is no God? You're not going to like it. (laughs) What's responsible for existence is ignorance. You can chew on that one for a while. The question was, in the Buddhist view, what's responsible for existence? It's the force of ignorance and craving which keeps this whole cycle of samsaric existence revolving. That's that force of grasping, that force of wanting, that force of clinging. Where does that come from? It comes from ignorance, from not seeing, from not understanding. Where does ignorance come from? Ignorance and craving are said to, at the center of this wheel, just, you know, like, uh, like they revolve about each other. It was my impression that uh, Buddha always sidestepped that question. Didn't he always say, oh, it profiteth not monks to ask that question? What he said was unprofitable was to ask about the origin or the beginning in time. Right. This, my response was not temporal. It's not that ignorance at the beginning of time was responsible. Because, according to the Buddhist texts, he said that as far as could be seen, this process is 
is beginningless. So it's more helpful, I think, to think of it as being circular. And what keeps it going is the force of ignorance and the force of craving. All realms. And that's why the, the thrust of the practice is not particularly to experience the higher realms. Because you experience them and you enjoy it. It's like a vacation. Right? Like a Hawaiian vacation. <laughs> and it's wonderful and it's beautiful. And, and then you have to come back. To cold New England. <laughs> It's hard to know really what somebody means from reading a book unless he's there to, she's there to really pursue it. In reading it, my mind interpreted it in several ways. One is the mind getting quiet, just stopping the conceptual overlay and simply being there. Another possibility would be possibly the experience of the mind stopping, the unconditioned. But I couldn't really say what he meant. the end of the third Zen Patriarch where he says I I can't remember exactly it's a a paraphrase Um, no yesterday no tomorrow no today and it's really to see that even The present is a concept. Where's the present moment? Show it to me. In other words, even solidifying that much is too much. And so really, all there is, is a process of change. Is that your experience? Or do you or do you actually experience phenomena as changing? I mean just very pragmatically. Are you aware of change? Are you aware of process? Are you aware of arising and passing of phenomena? Ha, 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 ha.
Okay. You keep looking. See, the, the difference between meditation and philosophy, and I, I was a lover and a student of philosophy at college, although I've fortunately forgotten everything. <laughs> but the difference is that the question you asked, we could have a wonderful philosophical discussion about it. And it would not have any bearing whatsoever on the way we experience things. But we also experience ourselves as real, and yet we're told we're Do not you? real. Do you? Uh, yeah, we do have what? a sense of I. Of what is it? Well, that isn't the point. <laughs> no, no, no you, you said that we experience ourselves. What's the experience? What is it? What is it? What is it? I don't know. Well, how do you know it's there if you don't know what it is? See, I'm suggesting that you think that there's an I, but that you actually don't experience it other than as a thought. But then we can also say that we think we see change. Do you? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> when you're sitting, this is, this is important. When you're sitting and there's an awareness without thought of thoughts coming and going or sensations coming and going or sounds coming and going, that's not thinking, that's not the concept. Right? Everything is changing. It's true, you could, you could sit there and think, everything is changing, everything is changing, everything is changing. That's not the experience of change. Right? But when you're dropped into the awareness of it, that, that's a direct experience for yourself, isn't it? See, part of the problem with this concept of self is that it's like there's a... What is this? Some some kind of sociological phrase, consensual reality? Is that a, you know, where everybody agrees on something. And so it creates that reality. Our, not, a, not only our society, the world, human beings, have agreed that there's a self. And it's reinforced in countless ways. And very few people actually ever stop to investigate that assumption. What happens when you do is that you have a hard time finding it. Is that reasonable to you? Uh, well, frankly, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a lot of trouble with the <coughs> Ananta, the doctrine of Buddhism. In fact, I, I really can't buy it. Okay, l l let's do a little experiment. Okay? Maybe we'll. Everybody can. We've done it before, but do it again. <laughs> Just sit and hold your hands together, if you would. Okay, and feel the sensations of contact. Just get quiet and real close. 
What are the sensations that you feel? Are you asking? Yeah. Um, yeah. Warmth. Okay, stay with it. Warmth. <coughs> what else? Okay, what's, what's the experience of fleshness? Flesh is a concept. Okay. Okay, even that's a concept. What's the sensation involved? Okay, what is that? I experience it primarily as warmth. Okay. Okay, stay right with it. There's warmth, there's humidity. Let's stay with the sensation. What else is going on there? It keeps fading away uh, at the same time. Okay, it keeps changing. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, stay with it. Okay, there's warmth, humidity. Is there any feeling of a pressure sensation? Uh, yeah, that's what I meant by two surfaces. Okay. Okay. There's pressure, there's warmth, there's humidity. Any tingling or pulsing? No, not particularly. Okay. Stay with, just stay with the sensations. As you're with the pressure and the warmth, and you're just with those sensations, just that experience. You there? Are there any hands? Yeah, I, I, I can see certainly what you're saying. Any, ha- what you're saying. any hands? In the sensations? in the awareness of the sensations to experience hands. No, no hands. Okay, no hands. Just the, there's the pressure and the warmth and the humidity. Okay, stay with it. No hands. Any fingers? I guess probably you would have to say it's a concept that I know I have fingers, right. but I don't feel the fingers right. as such. Right. Okay, no fingers, no hands. What there is, is those sensations of pressure and warmth and humidity. Okay, right there, just stay right with those sensations. Is there any Peter? Just in the experience of those sensations. No, just, uh, what, what is it? What's the experience in that way? In in the awareness of the sensations, just in that experience, what is Peter? Just the fact that I can't answer what Peter is doesn't mean that Peter doesn't exist. Okay, just give me a, even a hint. 
In in that experience. Okay. Go, wait. 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 Go. Go back to the go back to the sensations a minute. Okay. Just stay right with it. In that experience, there's sensations and an awareness of the sensations. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So when you're just with that experience, the sensations, the awareness of the sensations, just with that, is there anything more than that? No, that's all right. Okay, so that's it. Okay, in that moment then, that's all there is? Yeah, but the, the important thing is that it, one moment is tied together to another moment. Right. Okay, let's take the next moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is important. I'm not I'm I'm really being serious. I have a burning question. <laughs> yes. It, it ties right in with the question I really wanted to ask and to me this is you know, this is one of the reasons I can't I can't buy it. If there is no such thing as the self, as an essence, as um a soul, call it what you will, how can there be reincarnation which implies that something carries on from one lifetime to the next, just as we have a sense that there's something carrying okay, on. Okay, okay, okay. Right. Good question. Good question. If you take a seal and you imprint it in wax and you remove the seal what's carried over? Is there anything of the seal? Is there any kind of essence of the seal which is in the wax? Okay, then. Okay. How about <laughs> staying open? Just you discover for yourself. I, th there is certainly no reason for you to believe, you know, that there's no self. There's, there's uh, all of, you know, common sense, and most people will agree that there is. Just take a look. Keep taking a look. You know. Stay open. Stay open to it's possibility. I think it's not only common sense. I mean, there are some very great the, the, the rishis in India, for instance, uh, the whole Atman doctrine, uh, and so on. I mean, there there's some great people who have. It's true. Man, many people. Most people. The question in my mind. They may not be right. <laughs> but no. Uh, right, absolutely. That's why the Buddha said, don't believe me, don't believe the books, don't believe the rishis. Don't believe anybody. Because belief has nothing to do with it. He said, if you want to discover the truth, pay attention. Discover it for yourself. And that really is the only resolution. 
because if you go around to a hundred people, you would get a hundred different opinions. And what difference would it make? Until we know for ourselves, the opinions and the ideas and the views, even of the Buddha, don't make any difference. Can you be a Buddhist, consider yourself a Buddhist, without believing in the Anatta doctrine? You could. <laughs> Why would you want to? I mean, is that so central uh, a part of the whole doctrine that if you take it out, you actually disembowel Buddhism, so to speak, or is it something you can take or leave? It's less important to become a Buddhist than to discover the truth. And that's the Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. Buddhism came much later. The Buddha taught the Dharma. He taught the truth. And he taught a way for people to experience it. And, and it's not a question of belief. Because belief doesn't... You can believe it or you cannot believe it. And it doesn't affect the truth. Our practice is not to get lost in an argument on the concept level, because it doesn't affect our understanding. Right? True understanding comes from our own experience, which is why we spend most of the day sitting and walking in silence. Yeah. The, only, the only attitude that I would suggest is that of openness of mind. And so, take this journey as an exploration, right? without a preconception of what you'll see or what you'll discover. Yeah. <coughs> uh, there are times in practice when I can see the impersonal process of what's coming off. Uh, most of the time, when I'm being mindful, it, I don't have that much of a clear awareness that it's an impersonal, impersonal process. Um, and I'm just wondering the difference in those two moments of practice if the times that, quote unquote, I'm being mindful but I'm not aware that it's just thought, emotion, sensation, thought, emotion, sensation. What's, what's that? What are those moments within the whole context of practice? Because it, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm watching it, or when it seems impersonal, then it, um, it's like it's no big deal. <laughs> I don't know how to put it. But uh, it, it just seems a totally different space and awareness of what the practice is about than when I'm, than, than when I'm, not, look, I'm not aware of it. I'm not mindful. There are two levels of mindfulness. One is mindfulness of content, and one is mindfulness of process. In other words, the first is, what is it that's happening? Right? What's the thought? What's the emotion? What's the sensation? That's, in the Buddhist terminology, it's called the specific characteristics of experience. What, what, the, what the specificity 
is. And that's one level of mindfulness and awareness, and it's the level we start at. Okay, what's happening in this moment? What's happening in this? What's happening in this? At a certain momentum, when there's a certain momentum of noticing, it's as if the mind clicks to a different... It's almost as if it, as if it backs off a little bit. So instead of being so um, tuned to the content right, of what each moment is, it becomes more aware of the fact of its arising and passing. And then it's, then it's a whole different uh, ball game because from that level of awareness of the process, right, that, that awareness of change and impersonality, it doesn't matter what's happening. We see things happening, changing so quickly, just it's totally insubstantial. From that point of perception, what it is that's dissolving in front of us, what's the difference? And so the mind gets very spacious because instead of the reactions and the likes and the dislikes and the clinging and the condemning to what it is, all of that is let go of because we are aware more of the process of change. What I found is that uh, every time that happens, I get so excited that uh, blow it. <laughs> you know, and then, and then what, the next thing is that I'm trying to get it back and I'm right. that you know, for the next three weeks. Right. <laughs> You'll do that for a few more three-month courses. And <laughs> it's true. That's why you have to stay very mindful when when the mind drops into that level of perception and all of a sudden, oh, you know, you get excited. The excitement has to be made part of the process. Right? So the mind's not backing into that corner, identifying with the excitement, but rather seeing that too as part of the changing flow. It's a balancing act. You know, and it takes a lot of practice to just get that, that balance of mind which can just you know, walk on the high wire. That was my question. Uh, I wonder if you talk for a few minutes about balance of mind and your own experience of, of your understanding, or not your understanding of it, but actually the cultivation of it in your own practice as it unfolded, and what the source of it is, how to cultivate it rather, and, and what gets in the way of what you There's a great image for balance of mind but it's sort of a, a different image than that of a high wire. It's a vertical image. It's if somebody falling out of a plane. And that feeling of panic. Because there's no parachute. Can you imagine falling out of a plane without a parachute and that total panic until a little further down you realize there's no ground. That's the balance when you realize there's no ground and you can just surrender. how to do it. You sit and you walk, and you sit and you walk, and you sit and you walk. 
it's really just that quality of surrender, of letting go of the panic, of trying to hold on, of trying to push away, of trying to interfere, trying to do this and that, and just just free fall. To try to, to... To attempt to experience these things. They seem to be a good part of my existence. Absolutely. <coughs> it's really a question, it's that same thing, of surrendering to the experience rather than resisting. So there's fear, there's anger, right? And mostly, we condemn and we don't like. Which is just more aversion. We're, we're piling aversion on top of aversion. It's a question of softening. The, an image I used a little earlier on in the retreat, which might help you. Somehow we all have the wisdom to know how we would relate to these states if they were in some child, you know, sitting by the side of the road. A child who's angry or afraid or sad or lonely or feeling unworthy or all the things that we feel. See that child, who would, who would go and kind of start clubbing the kid? You know, why are you feeling that? Club, club. We wouldn't do that. We'd go and be there, probably. You know, we'd probably just be there. Not, not indulge it, not, not wallowing it, just be there, right, in a loving way. It's to internalize that. All these states that come up in ourselves, to embrace them, not to wallow, not to identify with it, not to club. That's the balance, that's the surrender.
information. When is it skillful? I know the thing about when you say, you know, don't push too hard. But I feel sometimes like when I'm sitting with that and I, I, I'm about to get up and I say, no, sit with this some more. You know, it goes on and on, but there really is no clarity at all. It's all discursive. I feel a lot of times like I'm cultivating anger because I'm not aware of it until I'm right in the midst of some old thought. I feel like I'm, I may be cultivating a lot of unconscious, um, unwholesome things, whereas it might be more skillful to get up and walk. If, and I don't know when to just sit with it and when to, to get up and walk or, or whatever. I would trust your intuition. Okay. <laughs> really, I mean, intuition is an important part of the practice because really the mind knows, you know, and sometimes you can be sitting and struggling and you just have the sense that it's fruitful just to stay there and be with it and you want to do it just to be there with it. And at other times you have the sense that it's just a struggle. And all you're doing is cultivating those states. So then you get up and walk. Um, well, you've spoken of consciousness and primarily as being the knowing faculty. And you've spoken of, I think, awareness and mindfulness synonymously as noticing, noticing that which one knows right. at a given moment. I'm going to try a kind of absurd example, I guess. This morning I had two things to do. When I went to the laundry room, I had to finish, had some clothes that were needed to be taken care of in my dishes. So I did the clothes, I finished washing, wrung them out, set them down. Then I, I was, you know, attentive to what I was doing. Did my dishes and walked out. And then about a half an hour later I was sitting in the library and I recalled that I left my clothes. What, in terms of consciousness and awareness, how can you explain those events? Because I had the intention of taking care of all both those items at the same time. And I don't know why I remembered what I did, I don't know why I forgot what I did. I mean, in terms of what I was conscious of and what I was aware of, and how those two factors uh, work together. If I understand the question you're asking about why the mind forgets? Yeah, it's it's about forgetting, remembering, and being awake. And you know, the the things all over the terms all overlap with each other. I'll bet, although you should check it out, right, that you're mindful, 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 and then a thought came, and you went on a little thought trip and then you forgot. That's my guess, but you should definitely check out the process and see. But isn't there some kind of a, a mind factor that's responsible for, for keeping the things together? Because you can't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it's actually cultivated in practice. <laughs> My sense is that it's probably moments of spacing out, and you lose that sense of purpose of what you're doing.
but it's worth it's worth yourself investigating it to actually see what goes on, you know, at that time. Can you be so concentrated on one thing that you forget the other? Well, you could be, let's say you could become so narrowly concentrated. In other words, you could get so into pouring a cup of tea and so into the movement, you know, that it just becomes fascinating. <laughs> As the water goes, you know, all over the place. And that's concentration without a more panoramic awareness. <laughs> so it's also being very conscious moment to moment. Right. But it's not just the narrow focus that we want. Right. It's that ability of the mind, right, within a larger context. So that when you're doing something, you're also aware of the context of what's happening. So is the mind actually divided in that, in that way then? That there's a kind of a foreground and a background? Okay, but foreground and background don't have to be divided. The latter. Because what mindfulness means is aware of the object without identifying with it. And wrong view means identifying with it. So, when you gave the, the example of two different levels of mindfulness, in that first level where there's mindfulness of um, content, is there any wrong view in that level of mindfulness? N- not if there's real mindfulness there. No. In other words, you can be aware of the content of a thought, a sensation, a sound, without identifying with it. Without adding to it the thought or the idea or the sense of mind. Right? But just the suchness of, of that moment. Surrender and pull back? Well, to not make it like a psychological knowing. Those, mm, that seems to be confusing two things. There can be noting and it not be... When I use the word psychological level, what I'm referring to more is the why of things. Yeah, why these emotions come or why these thoughts come. Right, the, the underlying conditioning behind it. You can be noting, simply noting the bare experience without it, without it having that psychological inter- interpretive function. Or is that the experience? Because sometimes I, I'm noting all of these things and I can see them rising and falling, but I don't know whether I'm 
is that what I guess what I'm asking is I don't know if that's the if there's something beyond that that's more of an experience am I still okay the, the noting is fine there's no problem with it you want to sort of check out whether the noting is what's predominant or the actual experience because the noting can be very soft and the predominant aspect of what's happening will be the experience there are times when the process of change the perception gets so quick and it's just like instantaneous change there's no time to note and at that at that time the noting falls away naturally so when you're truly experiencing then are you it, does the noting always fall away? No, you, no, not necessarily. You, you could be right there with an experience and, and be softly noting it. In uh, one of the first talks you gave at the beginning of this retreat, you spoke of the possibility of creating our lives, and you used the phrase, sculpting our lives. Could you touch on this again, uh, in light of all the knowledge and experience we have with the possibility <laughs> That, that level of creativity with respect to our lives I think comes when we stop battling with life. In other words, when we can create enough space in our minds so that we're not continually acting out simple habit patterns of reaction, right, that constant reactivity of mind, we can come to enough balance and space out of that space it's then possible to choose and creatively direct our energy in a particular way as an example and somebody we've spoken about over the three months is Mother Teresa and she's a wonderful example because most of us spend our lives resisting and avoiding suffering. Suffering in the body, suffering in the mind, suffering interpersonally, suffering with the environment. There's a lot of unsatisfactoriness and suffering that's going on and mostly what we do is, is to resist it. And so all of our energy gets bound up in that resistance. That's what we're doing in our lives. And that's what we're fashioning. Resistance to feeling pain. And so we get we get imprisoned, right? It's a very it's a it's really a straitjacket, right? kind of keeping it keeping it at bay, making sure everything's you know secure and nothing touches us. Take somebody like Mother Teresa who has totally open to the suffering. She's not pushing it away at all. She's inviting it. She she's just opened herself to the truth of what's around her. In that openness, there's tremendous space to move, right? because there's not all that effort to kind of, you know, keep everything keep everything back. And as you may notice with her and everybody else who's <coughs> truly opened to suffering, there's tremendous joy. There's a tremendous joy and lightness and happiness, and it's the resistance or the avoidance. It's that lack of surrender to what's happening. Right? 
that creates tension and tightness and frustration and fear. So that, I see, is really the basis for fashioning one's life, creating enough space in our lives and our minds to, to move. And we, we can move if we're busy fighting, struggling. There's a difference, but they're related. Impermanent means that it doesn't last. It comes and it goes. It appears and it dissipates. It arises and passes. Empty means empty of self, empty of I. That is, it is just what it is. A thought is a thought. It's not my thought. A sensation is a sensation. It's not my sensation. An emotion is an emotion. It's not my emotion. That's the emptiness. The emptiness of self. But it doesn't mean that it's not there. It means that everything is exactly what it is. It's the suchness of each moment. Okay, take a look now. Just take a look in the room. You can see it's a big room with a lot of people, right? Where's the knowing? Is it is it in the head? Is it in the elbow? Is it up on the ceiling? I once drove myself crazy in my practice. I was walking around this room, it was a room like this, and just determined to discover where the knowing was. (laughs) Because I knew there was knowing, because I was walking and there was knowing of the walking. And I was looking so carefully to see where that knowing was. You're distinguishing between the seeing and the knowing of color. Where is it? Where is it? Okay, it may be, and this I'll just suggest you to see for yourself. It may be that the concept of place is inappropriate for something that's immaterial. And we just confuse. Like we're so used to dealing with material tangible things being in a certain place, as you said, the sense of being here, that we then apply it to something that's immaterial, and that may not be an appropriate um, 
idea. And I think you'll find as the practice goes on that knowing is not localized in in space, in place. But then doesn't one say that, you know, uh, Joseph knows or there's, in, in other words, I can say... Just conventionally. Oh. Just yeah. conventionally. Okay, one last question. Um, could you speak a little bit of the distinction between uh, the mind that knows you're talking to Judith about, you know, trust your intuition and all the other parts of the mind which are <laughs> which are just... Like you shouldn't trust. There are many, as you've seen. The word mind, and this also can cause some confusion, because often in the West, mind is equated with intellect. It's not the way we use mind in in the Buddhist terminology. Mind includes intellect, it includes thoughts, it includes emotions and feelings and moods, intuition, all the mental factors of concentration and awareness, all of that is mind energy. Intuition Intuition is that response which comes out of a silent mind. When we're not caught up in our thoughts, which are very conditioned by all the TV programs we've seen and all the books we've read and you know, all the things we've heard, that, that's very much conditioned our thought process. My experience has been that when the mind gets more quiet and more silent, and you're in a situation, out of that silence comes a response. And it may come as a thought, as a verbalization, it may come as an image, it may come as a movement. That's what I mean by the word intuitive. That is, it's not thought out, but it's just from, from the stillness, from the stillness of mind, emerges the response. And that's a very, it's a very spontaneous, free way to move in the world, to move in relationships. It's like when people come in for interviews. And what makes it so interesting, you know, for me, is that, of course, it's a hundred different mind worlds, you know, coming in one after the other, and it's not like there's some game plan, you know, that kind of plug into and it's more just people come in and their energy and they say what they say and then there's a response and the response just comes out of that space it's not thought out it takes some practice to begin to distinguish the intuitive level 
from the conditioned thought level. You know, and I'm sure you've all experienced acting on what felt like an intuition and it being disaster. (laughs) And maybe intuition sometimes are disaster. But but often it feels like a very natural uh, natural connectedness because it's not coming from the thought level. It's coming from the level of silence. As I've mentioned, Manindra once gave a, a talk on 21 kinds of silence of mind. So it goes very deep. You know, and that's... Actually, I'll just spend a couple of minutes in closing what I was thinking about in terms of where the retreat is and all of your practice and all the questions and doubts that come up, you know, especially as it's coming close to the end and you're leaving, you start you know, wondering what it was all about and what you got and what you understood and what you didn't understand. Just that whole level of, of doubt and questioning in the mind. I hope that that you have the sense that the fundamental nature of mind, the ground nature, the bottom line of mind, which we all share, it's the nature of mind, is silence. And it's out of the silence that all the hurricanes and whirlwinds and agitations and it all happens. But it comes out of that silence, out of that very deep, profound stillness. And it's something that is in all of us because it is the nature of mind. If you connect with that or have a glimpse of it or a sense of it or a smell of it, in whatever way, Just understanding that creates a tremendous sense of confidence. Because even as we're going through all our stuff and a lot of stuff comes up and we get caught and we get carried away and we drown and all kinds of things happen. But if we remember that the fundamental nature of mind is that stillness or goodness or peace or silence, however you want to call it, then there's a tremendous sense of confidence. You know, there's a confidence to continue the exploration, to continue the unlayering, the opening. And it's in that sense that practice is not to get anything. We're not trying to get anything that we don't have. It's dropping back into who we are. Try that image of falling out of the plane, realizing you don't have a parachute, panicking, and then realizing there's no ground. Just the silence. Thank you. This is great. I love doing this.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.